Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Well, good morning. Uh, my apologies if I am blowing my nose. Um, I do have allergies. I don't know if any of you guys have, uh, have gotten that yet, but I'm not from here. That's the reason why I have allergies. I'm from California. There we don't have, uh, oh, my name's Antonio, by the way. But there we, uh, we don't have all these green trees or anything like that. <laughs> or really, the change of seasons. Uh, I mean, I remember the first time fall came around, and one day the grass was green, and the next day all the grass was gray. And I was shocked. I was like, what the heck is happening here, man? Like, they could, the apocalypse could have happened because <laughs> everything just changed overnight. And I was, uh, I was really amazed. But uh, to share a little bit about my testimony of who I am and uh, I guess where I'm from. You now know I'm from California. I have two parents. My dad, his name is Chung. Uh, my mom's name is Maria. Uh, my dad, he's from Vietnam. He came here as a refugee during the Vietnam War. Uh, he's Chinese, though. Uh, he's second-generation Chinese born in Vietnam. Vietnam. Um, and he came on a pirate ship to an island in Malaysia. Uh, he fled overnight, leaving his father, or his mother. His father was already dead. Leaving his mo mother and sister and brother and going with his aunts, uncles, and cousins to the... Uh, to, on a pirate ship to Malaysia, and from Malaysia, the U.S. military would pick them up and bring them to the United States, uh, to California. Um, and then my mom, my mom's from Mexico, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, his name was Antonio too, and he lived to 112 years old, and uh, he fled from Spain during a time of war, um, where he would watch his parents be murdered, um, and he would flee on a boat, uh, not knowing where to go, and he'd end up in Mexico. Um, and he would uh, refuse to identify himself as Spanish all his life because of the uh, atrocities that he would have witnessed. Um, my grandfather, he worked in the fields picking vegetables. He was a field worker uh, in Spanish, called a campesino. And uh, he, he worked so hard, he got sponsored through his work uh, in the fields here in the United States that he would bring then his family, my mother and her probably five or six siblings, I don't know how many, I don't keep count. Um, but they would sponsor them and they'd come and all of them, both my dad and my mom's family would settle in a town called Oxnard, California. And uh, they would never know each other there. We got probably about a city of two, 200,000 people, so half the population of Kansas City. And um, they'd meet in a place called Norfolk, California. Uh, it's close to Los Angeles, uh, if you've ever been out there. And uh, they'd get married, have a few kids, two kids, and I would be the younger. And I didn't grow up in a religious family due to that background. My mother, she was a Catholic because she's Mexican. And my father, because, you know, the communist revolution in Vietnam, he would be agnostic. He, he wouldn't care uh, about God. To this day, I, you know, I've gotten to talk to him about Jesus. And he says, why do I need God? Well, my life's perfect the way it is. And so, uh, I didn't grow up in a family that was religious. Um, I probably have been, set, I said before coming to MBT, um, I probably had set foot in the church probably less than ten times in my life. And if it was a church, it was a Catholic church. Um... I grew up barely Catholic. 
Uh, I did my catechism in the Catholic Church. I did my first communion in the Catholic Church. And my mom wanted me to do my confirmation in middle school. But I told her, uh, I was old enough then, I told her I don't want to do it. And so uh, I didn't really care about God or anything spiritual. But came, high school came around and uh, you know, I asked uh, Antoine this question. You know, what does he plan to do after, after high school? And you know, that question comes out a lot. And I'm always thinking back then. I was always thinking, what am I going to do with my life, you know? Why am I here? You know? And I do apologize if I cry. But I didn't know why I was here. And I was very sad about that. Why am I here? I wake up every day. I I poop. You know, I brush my teeth, eat breakfast. I go to school. I come home and I do the same thing. And then on the weekends I go fishing with my dad or I go for a bike ride with my dad. And that's it. That's the vanity of my life. And one day my parents are going to die. One day I'm going to die. And why was I here? What was my life for? And so I decided, man, there's got to be a purpose of life. I looked and I saw, I was like, you know, creation is kind of cool. You know, I was into science. And so, you know, you learn about the mitochondria in like ninth grade or 10th grade or whatever. And it's like, wow, you know, this is pretty complex. You know, how can this exist, you know, just by random? And so I thought, you know, maybe this would be a God. And so I decided, you know, if uh, I'm going to start looking for God and the Biggest religions in the world are the Abrahamic religions, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So I thought, well, if I started reading the Bible, I'd be able to figure that out. If I read the Bible, I'd be able to see if the Muslims are correct, I'd be able to read it and see that this Bible is corrupt. If the Jews are right, I'd be able to read this Bible and see that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. And if I read this Bible and I see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then I know that Christianity is right. And then if all of them are wrong, well, then... I knocked out some of the biggest major religions in the world. And, uh, and so I started reading the Bible. I asked for Christmas for a Bible. I didn't own one uh, to that point. So I was probably about 2015 or something like that. I asked for a Bible. And my aunt, she gave me a Bible. And I started reading it. And I read up to Isaiah 53. And that's when I... That's, uh, and through... Because where I'm from... I'm from California. You know, everybody's pretty much atheist or they're culturally Catholic because everybody's Mexican right there. My high school was 90% Mexican, 3,000 students. Um, and so I didn't know any Christians. I didn't know any Christians growing up, really. Only a few, only a handful. Uh, but I listened through online some street preachers preaching the gospel. And um, that's where I heard it. But I didn't believe it until I read Isaiah 53 where I saw the prophecy that was talking about Christ coming to suffer. And I, I, thereafter, shortly after, when I was willing to repent from my wickedness, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior and I got saved. And uh, He changed my life. He gave me hope and purpose. And However, at that time, to be honest, not much of my life really changed. <laughs> You know, uh, it would only be a few years after that because nobody would have taught me the Bible. I remember I was reading the book. I was reading the Bible and I didn't understand what it said. (laughs) And it made me so sad. And so I prayed to God, pray He would teach me. And He brought me here, the Kansas City. 
<clears throat> I'd go to college at UMKC. And I'd come to uh, come to to MBT through a friend. I felt very lonely and sad. You know, I have a journal. I had a journal. I was very prideful. I titled it <clears throat> "My Memoir: Truth by God." And I, I wrote this. I'll read you a little excerpt. It says, uh, just to give you an example of how I was, how I was feeling. I said, I feel like lately I've been wanting to get into a fight. I wish God would gouge my eyes out or put me out of my misery because I know that would numb my annoying feelings. I hate jealousy. I'm a very jealous person. I wish I wasn't jealous. I hate the fact that I have such hatred. And I hate the fact that I hate. And the worst part of it is that it's a cycle. An inescapable cycle I was trapped in and I couldn't free myself from. I felt so sad and miserable. So sad and miserable. And perhaps some of you today are suffering from those very same feelings I felt. Those feelings of helplessness and despair, those feelings of entrapment within your wretched self, isn't that the worst? You can't escape your own body. Those feelings of being destitute of any hope where you feel you would rather just die than to continue on. Because that's how I felt. Excuse me. Perhaps today, you're stuck in that inescapable cycle, or at least seemingly. And so today, it's my prerogative, my purpose, to give you reproof of wantonness, because I think that's one of those big things in life that makes you feel that way. And so I want to give you guys reproof of wantonness, that you guys might be cleansed of that, and to remain separate of all such filthiness that besets us. And so really, the sermon is going to go in two parts. A big, a big section of time, we're going to talk about why. Because we're going to be in 1 Timothy 5, and that's talking about widows. And you guys will be like, well, why are we talking about widows when none of us, well, I hope none of you guys have ever been married and lost your spouse. <laughs> you know, so why are we talking about widows? You know, How, you know why, why? You guys are just in high school. Why? And then we'll talk about the wantonness. Uh, so you can turn your Bibles, if you like, if you have them. The first Timothy five will prep out there. I'll give you guys a second, and I'll turn with you. <clears throat> but as previously, today we'll be in the first chapter of the uh, first epistle of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And now, if you didn't know much about Timothy. You know, him and Paul, they had a really close relationship. You know, Paul discipled Timothy. Paul considered Timothy a son in the faith, uh, which Paul himself states in the first epistle of Timothy and elsewhere. Timothy was so close to Paul that Timothy was involved in at least eight of the 14 epistles that Paul wrote. Uh, that's over half of the epistles that Paul wrote. So quite a few. And who knows, you know, he could have been around more. You know, that's, that's my speculation, but who knows. But probably the most important fact about Timothy is that he is a faithful man. Okay, i got to mention this. 1 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere 
in every church. Timothy was faithful and a beloved son. He was a good steward who could be who could be put in who could put in remembrance the believers of the way of Christ. And he was someone that Paul could entrust a church with to be taught. Timothy was faithful, even to the point where he would follow Paul in his example of being imprisoned. And you can read about him being released in Hebrews 13, 23, where it says, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set out of liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Timothy was faithful, and it's no wonder he became the first bishop, or in other words, the first pastor at the church of Ephesus. And in this first letter to Timothy, Paul is focused very much on the structure and the offices of the local church, as well as his interactions between Christians. It is here where Paul addresses various focuses for different groups of people as they struggle with different stages of life. Paul basically goes like this. You struggle with this? Okay, I'm going to tell you this. And that's, that's what's happening here. You know? And perhaps that's throughout all the epistles. But uh, especially here in Timothy, I would say. Uh, so I'd like to have a, one more quick little prayer. Uh, quick little prayer to God so if you guys would join me <clears throat> Lord Jesus I pray God that you would uh, clear my throat of allergies and I pray God you would help me to have focus and be led by your spirit and I pray that lives would be uh, changed today that people would be saved and people would be sanctified and uh, I thank you for your precious words and I pray this all believingly in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy 5. hope you guys are there. We're going to be in verses 11 to 13. I'll start reading. But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And withal, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Okay, so like I said, you might be thinking, what the heck, man? Why are we talking about widows, man? And that's, a, that's definitely a reasonable thought, 100%. Why are we talking about widows? And so whether you think so or not, you actually share a lot in common with them. You actually share quite a bit. I mean, after all, how, how different are you from, from everybody else, you know? If people say you're a snowflake, but at the end of the day, maybe you are unique, but you're still a snowflake, you know? It's still the same thing. So don't take it from me. Take it from the Bible. You know, what doth the Scripture saith? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, There have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. It says, there have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So brothers and sisters, there's no temptation that has taken you, but it's common to man. The things you suffer, all of us suffer. Widows and high schoolers alike suffer from like situations, like problems. Old and young, the same thing. 
And sometimes we may deceive to ourselves and say, you know, I'm the only one that has ever experienced blah, 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 blah. Don't lie to yourself. Be humble. Believe the Scriptures. What does it say? Agree with God's Word. And just to prove this point that widows are not so different from us, we will look together at the descriptions of these widows in the Bible. And we'll find that to be true. We are not so different from one another. One of the words used to describe a widow is simply widow. Okay, widow. And this is the one of the things you have in common with them. You're actually, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you actually have been a widow. Romans 7, 1 to 4 says this. Paul is giving, a, giving an example. Or uh, he's liking something to us. Right? That salvation is like becoming a widow and being married again. He says, Know ye not, brethren? For I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. Okay, so if a husband's alive and a wife's alive, they're bound together by the law. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. If her husband be dead, she's loosed, a widow, in other words. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, right? If, she, if, if her husband's living and she's alive too, and she goes and lives with another man, you know, and engages in different activities. That's called adultery. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that. But if she gets married to another man and has different relations with her, or with him, there's no sin in that, right? So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were married to the law. You had a husband. It was a law. And yet through Christ's death, you became dead to the law. And Christ rose again so you could be married again to him. So you, actually, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a widow. You may not have thought so, but you are. <laughs> However, I do think a more important way these widows are like unto us, maybe more practical, is that they're described here in 1 Timothy 5.11 as younger widows. It says, but the younger widow... Younger, young, refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. These young widows, these are young widows, they're youthful. Okay? They're youthful. And when you look at Titus 2, when it talks about young men, and you compare it to 1 Timothy 5, where it talks about widows, what you see is that they're super similar. They're super similar. In both of these passages, you see that Paul is commanding the young individuals to be exhorted to, ex to godly living so that they would not be able to be condemned by others, but rather that they would exemplify the doctrine of God. Both young individuals and young widows are commanded like things. He says in Titus 2, 6-8, Young men, what? Likewise exhort to be sober-minded, 
in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptedness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And 1 Timothy 5.14, we'll see that same pattern. I will therefore that the younger women marry, the widows, bear children, guide the house. Why? To give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You see that? In both situations, he's saying, live godly so that the adversary won't have anything to condemn you about. They're no different from you. They're no different from you and I. We are no different from one another. And that's important to know because what we're going to see is they share a like temptation here that is especially present in young individuals. Wantonness. A time of youth often supposed to be characterized by purity, unfortunately, is often not. This is what the younger widow in this passage was struggling with, and this is what the young people struggle with. This is what you and I struggle with, and we must overcome and deal with. And so I hope and pray you guys are beginning to see that connection between you and the widow. I hope and pray. We're not so different. These, these widows suffer from a temptation that is common to man due to their youth and their situation. So Paul here recognizes that these younger individuals have the ability and tendency to be easy picking for Satan to speak evil of. And that's why he's exhorting them, right, to live godly, that they, the adversary wouldn't speak reproachfully. And that's something that you need to be aware of. You are easy picking to find fault in. It's no coincidence, again, that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no man despise thy youth. Why is that? Why did Paul command Timothy that? Because he was youthful and he was despisable. Because of his situation, because of his youth, because he was younger, he was easily despised, and the same goes for you and I. And so this is, to make that point practical, this is what we got to reckon. As youth, it is even more imperative that we protect our testimony. People are going to make every excuse why not to listen to you. You don't have a job. You're still in puberty, you know. You still haven't lived as long as I have. Blah, 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 blah. You haven't worked as long as I have. You were just a baby when I started working. Oh, you weren't even born. Man, just the fact that you're young will cause others to despise you. I mean, I can't believe myself how many times I've heard those things. You know, it's like, oh my God, crazy. Howbeit, just as Paul said to Timothy, we should therefore be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You know, when people come into here, they should feel welcomed because you're a Christian. Man, God forbid that people come here and they don't want to be here because you're a jerk bag to them, man. You know how long I lived as a jerk bag when I was lost. You know how much I regret that my brother 
He doesn't want to talk to me anymore because how cardo I lived. You know how much I regret that. And you're a Christian. You come here every weekend. And you're joshing people when they come in here. God forbid. God forbid. Don't live like me. You're saved if you are. Live like it. I beg you. God forbid, man. Don't give people an excuse why not to listen to you. You're the excuse they need to not come to church, to not get saved, to not walk after Christ. It's you. God forbid. We got to flee from the appearance of evil, brothers, sisters. And sometimes it might not even just be fleeing from the appearance of evil. It might actually be fleeing from evil because it's in your life. We got to take heed. So we know who these widows are. They're young. And they're not all that different from us. Pretty self-explanatory, right? <laughs> you know, many of my key points, they're all, they're all pretty, pretty self-explanatory. You know, I ain't saying nothing different, nothing new. But now we're going to focus on the temptation to sin they are facing. 1 Timothy 5, 11-12 says, But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation, because they have cast off their first faith. It says here that when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, and in so doing, they bring upon themselves damnation. Now, I want to make sure no one misinterprets this. But the fact that you get married or not is not wrong or sinful, okay? <laughs> Marriage here is not the issue, right? It says they wax one against Christ, they will marry, have you damnation. But marriage is not the issue here. Actually, marriage is what Paul advises widows to do in verse 14 of this passage, where Paul says, I will therefore that the younger woman marry, bear children, guide the house, and give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So that's actually his solution. He's like, yeah, married, man. Elsewhere, in Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth, where he's comprehensively addressing the topic of marriage, he quite directly states that deciding to marry is not wrong nor sinful. Art thou bound, 1 Corinthians 7, 27-28, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry... Thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. It's not sin to be married. Okay? 
And I want to make sure that it's communicated for a few reasons. For one, I want to make sure nobody rests the scriptures, right? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, and thinks that to marry is sin. However, more importantly, I want to make sure in addressing this issue, that the focus is not on what's, that, what's being done, but what's in the heart. We're going to cover the heart of the issue. And so here, marriage is the action that is taken because of their problem. Wantonness is the issue, not marriage. Wantonness. So what exactly is wantonness? You know, that's one of those words that we don't really use too much today. You know, I mean, I've never heard anybody say that word in my life outside of context of the church. You know, wantonness. What the heck is that? You know, it could have been Japanese for all I know, man. So what exactly is it? And so let's, let's define it biblically. But I think first I'm going to hit some, uh, maybe some quick biblical numerology. But number, number of Bible for five, <clears throat> excuse me, five in your Bible is the number of death. And I, I think I'm going to skip a few slides because I, I do I, I want to talk about this, but five is the number of death. I mean, I'll, I'll give you some mentions. I mean, there's five books of the law, and the law is a ministry of death. Uh, Joshua entered the promised land uh, when he slew five kings. Uh, Jesus was smitten under the fifth rib, right? Five is the number of death, Okay. It's the number of death. And we'll skip, uh, I think, the next two slides. Um, but the word wanton, <clears throat> the word wanton and its variations, it occurs five times in your Bible. Wantonness happens five times. And why? Because it's the number of death. Wantonness is something that brings death into your life. You allowing wantonness in your life is literally inviting Death. If it didn't click, wantonness is sinful and satanic. Allowing wantonness in your life is inviting hellfire into your life. But to put wantonness in a few words, its definition I think is most easily ascertained in James 5.5. James 5.5. It says, Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Semicolon, ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. To be wanton is to have nourished your hearts through living in pleasure. You can see that from the context, but when you also look at how else that word in James 5, 5 is translated, you see it's translated as live in pleasure. That's probably one of the simplest definitions that you could have for wantonness. To be wanton is to live in pleasure. However, to stop the definition there would be a disservice to the Word, and it wouldn't expound upon it as it deserves. Wantonness, in addition to meaning the nourishing of your heart by living in pleasure, it has a sexual connotation to it. Right? Another mention of the Word is also translated as lasciviousness and filthy. Yeah, and you can see this exemplified in Romans 13, where it states alongside the word wantonness, the word chambering. Or elsewhere, in Isaiah 3, 16-23, where it speaks of the alluring daughters of Zion, decked with fine jewelry and apparel. And I, th I think we'll read this one. Isaiah 3, 16-23. Um, oh, and you want to open your Bible to this, because it's not going to be up there. Uh, so, Isaiah 3, Isaiah chapter 3. Sorry, I didn't give you a word. Isaiah 3, quick, quick, quick. Uh, sword drills like in uh, 
you know, tits out. Isaiah chapter 3. Who gets there first gets a piece of candy. I'm just kidding. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. And if you're not there, I'll just read it. Starting in verse 16, it says, Moreover, the Lord saith, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks, and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet, therefore... The Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. They had wanton eyes in verse 16. Verse 17, God says that He will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and about their calls and other and their round tires like the moon, the chairs, and the bracelets, and the mufflers, and the bonnets, and the ornaments, and the legs, and the headbands, and the tablets, and the earrings, and the rings, and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and hoods, and the veils. And so that's just a long description of all these clothes, all these things, right? To make, to appear alluring, right? To draw near, to appear attractive. So did you see that there? In the context of God speaking of the daughters of Zion's outward appearance, God promised to discover their secret parts. There's a sexual connotation to the word. And you see that in 2 Peter 2.18, where it says, For when they speak such swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. You see that? The alluring sense the word has. Do you guys see that? I hope so. Or else I'm doing a bad job. But to get back on track from elaborating upon that word wantonness. This is the sin the widows are guilty of. They are not guilty of marriage. They are guilty of wantonness. They have given their lives to pleasure. And as God says in that same chapter of 1 Timothy 5, verses 5 to 6, God considers that widow dead. Take a look at it for yourself. Take a look. God here gives a comparison between two different types of widows. A godly widow, and a proven widow, and a wanton widow. It says in verse 5, Now she that is a widow indeed, that proven widow, and desolate, trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure, you see that? She that is wanton, the wanton widow, is dead while she liveth. God sees this widow, even though she might be saved, as dead. As a lost person. And so wantonness is a grave sin. And whether or not you're actively engaging in wicked sexual behavior or not, God sees it and is just as bad. Wantonness can even make the fact that you get married wrong. It can defile that which is good. And so brethren, we got to reckon this. Wantonness is wickedness. And I'm saying this because I know how it was to be in high school and I know how it was to be in middle school. And how much sick perversion there was. How much baggage I have to carry now 
because of that. Abstain from it. Live godly. And exhort others to do the same. Preach the gospel. That people will be saved and delivered from the chains of darkness. I beg you guys. I had no one to preach the gospel to me in high school. Nobody ever shared with me the good news of Jesus Christ, of how he died for my sins and rose from the dead. I was so angry when I got saved that my mom, how could you, you're a Catholic. You say you know Jesus, and you never told me you could save me from my sins. I lived with the guilt of my sins, and I needed a Savior. What about your classmates? There's an Antonio in there, man, who's lost and lonely, and he needs some Christian who's charitable and kind and exemplifies godly behavior to share with him the good news. But you can't if you're living in wantonness. It's wicked. It's wicked. And so, man, I got, a, I got a question for you. Are you wanton? Have you given your life to the pursuit of living in pleasure, whether sexual or not, fornication, pornography, adultery, simply looking at people lustfully, you living for the weekends to go fishing, to go out to the lake with your friends, to go whatever, go cruising? Whatever. Smoking pot. Whatever, man. I don't know what you guys are doing. Or if you're doing anything wrong. I don't know. But if this is you, you need to repent. Repent now. You're dating. Maybe you're dating some lost person. You're dating some lost person. And it's causing you to come into sin. Defiling your temple. You need to repent. And break up with that individual. Man, you're struggling with something. You gotta come talk to your pastor. You gotta talk to your parents. You have people who love you and want to take care of you. Don't throw down the trash. You know what my parents told me when I got married? You know what advice they gave me? Nothing. I've always wanted my dad to guide me, and he never guided me. And you have that. Don't throw it away. Cherish it. Cherish it. Invite it. It might suck as hell, man. It might just suck, you confessing. But you need to do it. Because God is going to bless you. He's going to grow you and change your life. And that, that despair you felt, that despair I was talking about, it will be relieved. You'll be free. The thing I want to mention is that don't live in wantonness because it brings damnation to you. 1 Timothy 5, 11, 12. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation. You know the Christian can have damnation. There is damnation if you live the way you're not supposed to. 
It doesn't affect your eternal security, but it affects your reward. You living for football, you living for basketball, you living for the cheerleading squad, you living for art, you living for whatever. Living to go to college. We can't. We can't afford that, man. The gravity and the severity of doing so is so great. So don't do it. You think you can get away with a little sin in your life? Don't do it. Because you won't. Don't lie to yourself. Don't invite wickedness in your life. Decide today not to live for pleasure before the Lord Jesus Christ. For that's why we were created. To give God pleasure. And so I don't know if we have altar calls or something like that, but man, come up and pray, repent, talk to your parents. I beg you. You know, I, I, I sound angry, and man, when I was carnal, I was an angry, 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 angry man. You know, my parents always told me, Antonio has such a sh short temper. And I'm like, yeah, I have a short temper. And you saying I have a short temper doesn't help me, man. It just makes me more angry, you know, provoking all your children to wrath. You know, please, I beg you. You know? But I'm, here I'm angry because this is golly anger. And not only that, but I wish. I wish I had some... Some weird 23-year-old coming to talk to me when I was in high school. And so I'm so thankful I had the privilege of doing that today. You know? So with that, I think we close in prayer and then you guys can come up if needed, yeah? Did we do worship afterwards? Cool. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I just say thank you, God, for the pain that... <clears throat> going through high school and middle school, I'm so thankful for that pain... Because I get to exhort my brethren for something very familiar from my days. And I pray that they would have deliverance and peace and comfort and lives filled of the fruit of the Spirit, God. I pray that many of you will be saved through them and that they would live lives worthy of, uh, worthy of what we've been called to, of our salvation. That we live and walk in such a, a way. And so I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.